Art can mean different things to different people. These are just our opinions. Ben and Tristan know that our opinions may differ from yours and encourage that difference. Also, spoilers. Welcome to Journey to the Center of Cinema, where we get to the center of movies and TV. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ben. And today we're going to talk about our favorite movies of the past year, 2022. Surprisingly, this was a good year for movies. Early on in the year, I was a little skeptical. A lot of the movies that came out in 2022 were COVID productions. They went into production either late 2020 or sometime in 2021. So they had restrictions on set and on the actors as they went through different stages of production. So I was never quite sure how these would turn out. Would they be really good movies? Would they be really bad movies? Would most of them just be somewhere in the meh category? But I think I can speak for both Tristan and I is as I was putting together this list of my top 10, I made basically a top 20 list. I had so many movies that could have in another year probably would have been in my top 10. But this year, the field was so strong. Yeah, it's exciting that we had some that I'm sure were finished before COVID hit and then they just delayed the release until we got some we got back to a certain point or they were in production during COVID and they managed to work around that and still put out some excellent films. And I think, yeah, like Ben said, any other year, this any one of these movies would have been the top, but we had so many good or fun movies this year that it was a little hard to narrow things down to just 10. So we're going to start off with just honorable mentions, some movies that didn't make our individual lists. Maybe they made the other person's list, but just rapid fire some good movies and maybe we'll keep one to two special honorable mentions that we'll talk a little bit more in depth. But a couple of mine, we'll start off. One of our close personal friends worked on a movie this year called The Lost City. And I thought it was a fun movie. I was I enjoyed it, but just special shout out to our friend Diego who worked on it. I want to start with that as an honorable mention. Some movies that surprised me by how good they were. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was maybe the best video game movie not named Detective Pikachu that I've seen. Chippendale Rescue Rangers had no right being good, and it was. I'm just, I'm starting with all the family movie movies. DC's League of Super Pets was one that yeah. I was blown away by how good it was. Yep. And yeah, some other ones that I know Tristan isn't probably going to mention. The new Scream, the reboot, requel, as they call it in the movie, pretty good. And another one that I really enjoyed was The Black Phone with Ethan Hawke, a horror movie that came out, I think, midsummer was mm-hmm. one that got a lot of traction, and I really enjoyed it. And it, was one that was in my top 10 for a lot of the year in the last month or so just slipped out. Yeah, and a couple of others that I've got probably at the very top of the list that got cut pretty late in the game here was Emily the Criminal, Aubrey Plaza's new thriller. It was just one of the most well-timed and tense movies I've seen in a long time. Specifically, one scene was one of the most uncomfortable moments in cinema in a long time, probably since Parasite, in a good way. But And if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what scene Tristan's talking about. Yep. Violent Night, that was a recent release. Basically, Home Alone, Die Hard, starring David Harbour as Santa. Just a lot of fun. A little more touching than I expected at the end. And I know there are talks of maybe having a sequel or other holiday. Would love to see it if it's the same team. See how they run. A uh, little spin on an Agatha Christie mystery starring Sam Rockwell. It was a lot of fun. And of course, mm-hmm. a very recent edition, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. 
any other year, I think that would have been on probably either of our top 10 list with uh, the writing and the performances in that movie and the direction by Ryan Johnson. But because this was such a good year, it barely didn't, it barely got cut. Yeah. And I will say on the subject of Glass Onion specifically, I think this is something, and I'm going to say this again later. So here's a little tease for you. I think what really hampers Glass Onion for me is just comparison to the other entry in the franchise. I loved Knives Out so much. And I really do enjoy Glass Onion. I also love it. I just think comparing it to the original, I liked the original more, which kind of unfairly weights this one down a little bit to say, yes, maybe it would have edged out a couple movies in my top 10, but just comparing it side to side with Knives Out, which I believe in 2019 when it came out was either my second or third rated movie of that year. It's just not it didn't reach the highs of that one to me personally. Also in See How They Run, a movie I texted Tristan after I saw it. And I said, you have to go see this. It mm-hmm. entered when I first saw it, it was in the top five for me of the year. And it also fell out just with so many great movies that came out at the end of the year. Two more that I want to mention real quick in our honorables. Two of the biggest box office movies of the year. Oh, also there's Avatar The Way of the Water, but I don't really want to talk about that one much. It was um, it was it was better than the first one. You can just leave it. It was that. fine. <laughs> oh, Seven there's out of a ten. Great whale. There's a good oh, whale. Best whale. Uh, we are not dishing on avatar i think both of us said hey it was much better than dune so great uh you know how we feel about dune here except the score Um, dune had the better score yeah that is fair but two high profile movies that i don't think made either of our lists doctor strange in the multiverse of madness also as we call it evil dead 4 the doctor strange Mm -hmm. one it was a very good movie had some hits or misses but we really enjoy sam raimi's direction thinking if it wasn't an mcu movie it may have actually worked a little bit better for us. Or if it was a Scarlet Witch solo movie, I think it would yes. also have been a little bit better. But it was a good movie. And the other one, which I think is going to top a lot of people's top 10 for 2022, that I saw, I don't think, Tristan, you ever went got around to seeing this one. It was in theaters forever. It's probably still in theaters somewhere. It's Top Gun Maverick which was the legacy sequel to the original Top Gun. Very good movie, a lot better than I thought it was going to be. The way they do a bunch of practical stunts and effects and the way that they bring this cohesive story together, honoring the past, going to the future. I thought it was really good. It was right around that 10-11 spot for me. And again, there were just a couple movies that I've seen in the past couple weeks that just bumped Top Gun off. But again... In any given year, that probably would have been a top five for me. Just this year, there were some really good ones. Yeah, I did never get around to seeing that, but I have listened to some other podcasts, and that is frequently on the top ten, if not in the top five of other people. So in no way does it mean, just because it's not on ours, doesn't mean it's not good. Now, unfortunately, not every movie that came out this past year was really good. There were some stinkers. So we're going to do some dishonorable mentions, some movies that we just did not care for, and we just have to lay it out there. Tristan, do you have one or two movies that were just bad that you watched this past year? I didn't have any written down, but maybe if you mention some, I'll think of something. But I didn't have anything that I like could think of that I hated. Well, I I I wrote down two, and I don't think either of these are necessarily like 
bad movies. I was just disappointed by both of them. First one that I thought of was Disney Pixar's Lightyear. As someone who grew up on the Toy Story franchise and absolutely loved those characters, loved those movies. Just from the very beginning, there's this saying across the screen in 1995, when Andy got his Buzz Lightyear toy, this was the movie he saw in the theater that was his favorite movie ever. And I'm like, no, none of this is true to the Buzz Lightyear lore that's established in the franchise already. Like that, that was just a weird addition, I think, to satisfy all of the people who were mad that Tim Allen wasn't back to voice Buzz. And the other thing is, it was, it was a very interesting sci-fi story that i think was hampered by the ip they tried to do some interstellar type things and some like high concept sci-fi in a kids movie so a lot of it didn't make a lot of sense and i again if it wasn't buzz lightyear i think i probably would have liked it a lot more but having to rely on that established ip i think just kind of ruined it for me i'm gonna be Um, honest i forgot that came out this year yeah i don't think I, i ever saw it and it just kind of left my brain you're not missing anything i don't think the other one that i thought was totally disregarded the established ip and just i don't know i it's not rise of skywalker levels bad for an end of a franchise (laughs) um, but jurassic world dominion was such a terrible entry in the jurassic park world franchise which is saying something because there have only been one good entry and then one to two passable entries for a movie that is so worried about, you know, using the legacy characters of Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler to make almost half, if not more of the runtime about giant locusts instead of dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah they... Oh, that just, and, it was such a, it was a choice. It was a and choice. I, I'm recalling that they took a character that for the last two movies had been building up to be some sort of villain. And then, all of his character development was off screen and we just had Dr. Wu suddenly being like, Oh, I made a mistake. I want to fix it. Yeah. I think, I don't know how much we've gone on record on this podcast talking about the Disney star Wars sequel trilogy and how there was no plan that it was very evident and they just kept scrapping things together I think both Tristan and I are Last Jedi in favor for people. Um, and then Rise of Skywalker came and just abolished everything that happened in that movie within the first like three minutes. But I would say maybe even a worse example is the Jurassic World franchise where there was there's no congruity between entries one, two and three. A little bit more between two and three, I think some of the characterizations are a little consistent, but little bit but it's not yeah and i'm assuming that maybe four or five years down the road we're going to get more jurassic park movies i'm not confident that they're going to be any good let the past die kill it if you have to (sighs) thanks kylo you have anything else the only one that i wanted so we had honorable mentions we had dishonorable mentions i want to just make a mention this has no positive negative attributes to it, is George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing, which is the most neutral movie I've seen all year. <laughs> it was a movie. I watched it. It had some really good things going for it. It had some really not good things going for it, especially the pacing. But it's one that I would, like, it is a strict 5 out of 10. 
There is nothing above that, nothing below it. I was like, I just want to give it a mention. It is here. It is a movie. It's been mentioned. Idris Elba's a genie, right? He is. But anyway, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this evening or morning or afternoon or middle of the night, depending on when you're listening. Tristan, let's start with you. What is your number 10 movie of 2022? My number 10 is a very recent release. It is a Netflix original for some reason, and that is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I'm so glad you had it on your list. This was my number 11 movie. I absolutely loved it, and it just it just got edged out literally two or three days ago when I watched another movie. This is a very interesting spin on the story of Pinocchio, which I believe, because we all associate it with the Disney movie, the animated movie, not the whatever they just released this year, in the year of Pinocchio. It is a dark story, and Del Toro took that and spun it and made it even darker. He set it in 1930s Italy against the backdrop of fascism we learned why geppetto made pinocchio and that is in a drunken rage after his son was killed he built a puppet and it was granted life and i think the most important thing to mention about this film is that it is stop motion and is just beautiful to look at from beginning to end has del toro's classic weird flair like the blue fairy looks like a biblically accurate angel there's a big chimera of death and Mussolini is like two and a half feet tall it's great there are some original songs in it that don't overstay their welcome and the voice cast is incredible from Ewan McGregor as Sebastian J. Cricket and to Kate Blanchett as a monkey it's just it is great every if you haven't watched it you should it is Probably the most interesting looking animation we have gotten since Into the Spider-Verse, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I know I've been on record. If you've listened to our very first episode of this podcast, you would know that one of the top five movies of mine of all time, which I would tell most people is my favorite movie of all time, is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. I love what he does as a director. And I think Pinocchio, just like Pan's Labyrinth and one of his underrated films, The Devil's Backbone, is when he can establish this line between the hardenedness of reality and all of the evil in the world um, that is done by other people and by outside forces and just the evil of humanity next to this storybook idealistic fairy tale when he can strike the balance between those things is when he's doing his best work. So when you take something that's super real and super tragic as fascism in Italy in that time, and you put it to this classic fairy tale of Pinocchio, it's this weird balance of understanding what's real and what's not. And I just, I love being able to clash those two things together into something that's really interesting and creative. And yeah, I really enjoyed this movie as well. Yeah, and it it touches on happy endings not necessarily meaning you, everybody gets exactly what they want in a twist that I did not expect, but it is an excellent film. I see probably an Oscar nomination in its future. Maybe not a win, but... I don't know, thinking back on other animated films this year, I think it's got a real shot to, to win it, and I hope it does. 
Yeah. Starting with my number 10 is a movie that I know Tristan hasn't seen because it is one that I've watched in the last few days. And I bet a lot of people listening haven't seen it either. So this is me giving a wholehearted recommendation to the film After Yang. It is written and directed by Oganada the writer-director who made a movie called Columbus, which has gotten a lot of traction in independent film circles. This movie is a sci-fi movie in the most lo-fi way possible. In a not-really-future, probably a parallel present, where there's a lot more technological advances around what they call in the movie techno-sapiens for emotional support slash just kind of adjustment to different periods in your life. So the way that this techno-sapien is brought into the main family presented in the film is the parents adopt a daughter from China and they get this android that is also presented as Chinese to help the girl that they're adopting acclimate to her new home and also understand her heritage and her culture where she came from. So it's this the company that they got it from is called Second Siblings, I believe. So it's designed to have a sibling for your child to just help raise and to help understand culture and all of these things. And the the crux of the movie, which doesn't really give much away because it happens within the first five minutes or so after, one of the best opening sequences of any A24 movie that I've seen. And I don't want to say what it is because it is so glorious and joyful and weird, which is what A24... A24 is known for two things. Joyful, extremely weird, off-the-wall things, and really dark, deep horror that's going to stick with you for a long time. This is the first camp, not the second. But basically, the the story is about what happens when that android technosapien stops working. That has basically been raised as an important part of this family. How does the family adjust? And how, by examining their lives and relationships, how do they understand themselves and one another better? And I just think... It is probably the most profound movie of 2022 that I saw. It was very moving and just has this undergirding of what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be alive and in community and relationship with others. And I really enjoyed it. So that's my recommendation because, again, I don't think a lot of people have probably seen it. Go see After Yang. Search it out wherever you get your movies um, and let me know what you think. Yeah, that is one that in the reviewing circuit has been a festival darling for at least a year or so. And I am looking forward to when I can see it, especially because it does have an actor in it who was having probably the best year of his career in 2022. And we will touch on him at least two more times. At least two more times. <laughs> and with that, I think I'm going to move to my number nine, which I know is... I as far as I know, is on Ben's list somewhere, and that is Bullet Train. Correct. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more once we get up to my list. But Tristan, just go ahead and talk a little bit. What makes Bullet Train work for you? Bullet Train 1 is one of the most fun action movies I have seen in a long time. Just straight action. It does have a lot of comedy, but I think it learned from John Wick in the best ways of how to format a fight scene. And then they just threw in jokes along the way that made it one of the funniest movies of the year, in my opinion. And on top of that, it had a cast of A-listers across the board 
giving some of their best performances in a way that you can tell they are just having fun. And we can touch on all of that later, but your uh, bullet train, if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix right now, go watch it. It's just over two hours long and you won't be disappointed if you're in the mood for just a popcorn movie. It's so much fun. Yeah. We will definitely talk more about it because I have a lot to say, but yeah, I'm glad that we both enjoyed that movie. Here's another one that I know we both enjoyed. My number nine is probably the most fun I had at the movies this year. I have a lot of fun at the movie theater this year, but what beats Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage in the unbearable weight of massive talent? This was one of my most anticipated movies of the year just because of how absurd it looked and wow, it delivered. So this is a movie where Nicolas Cage plays himself and is basically hard on his luck in his career. He's being passed over for so many roles and so many people are just seeing him as a lot of people talk about Nicolas Cage as... He's either a he's either the best actor or the worst actor. There's a great episode of Community where they have the film school debate of just like, is Nicolas Cage a good actor? And it breaks all of their brains. And I think what's so glorious about this is Nicolas Cage understands all of those criticisms and just feeds into it of going, okay, I will play it up and I will do a caricature of myself in the way that you see me. And just what he brings to this performance is great and what i was surprised by because i thought this would have been more of just a tongue-in-the-cheek parody of action films where nicholas cage just chewing the scenery and going crazy at the heart of it there's a really good action movie like it's a mm-hmm. great buddy comedy between nicholas cage and pedro pascal and there's a there's twists and turns throughout the crux of the story is nicholas cage goes to this cuban or Dominican Central American Central American like drug lords drug, estate yeah to basically go and perform show up to his birthday party and then the two create this really endearing friendship and are vulnerable with each other and talk about their love of movies and we get to the point where one of the best moments is talking about their top three movies and I don't want to give it away but just the third movie that Pedro Pascal's character picks is perfect. And I think Tristan and I both wholeheartedly agree that that should be there. It makes you want to be a better person. It does. And I think while this did just narrowly get edged out of my top 10 by Pinocchio, this was one of the most fun times I had at the movie theater. I unfortunately didn't get to see it in like a crowded theater. It was me and one other person who was not feeling it as much as I was, (laughs) but I, this is, He's such a weird movie. And if you look at it from the outside, it shouldn't work. But it does because I think everybody is in on the joke. And everybody was just having a good time. And after that, I am firmly in the camp of, yeah, Nicolas Cage is a good actor. His his taste in projects might be a little uh <laughs> Or his agent's times. taste, maybe. Yeah, like... I don't know. But, yeah, this was a lot of fun. It... It stayed in my top 10 for nearly the entire year until a couple, like maybe a week or two ago when I watched Pinocchio and I unfortunately had to boot it. But if you haven't watched it and you're a fan of either Nicolas Cage or Pedro Pascal, because Pedro Pascal is also excellent Mm -hmm. in the movie, you should watch it. You just go by knowing it's weird. (laughs) I would say if Pedro Pascal hasn't been a big name until The Mandalorian, 
But the projects that he's done over the past two or three years, even if the project hasn't been good, we're looking at you, Wonder Woman 1984. Mm-hmm. He was excellent in that movie. He understood yeah. the assignment and he hammed it up and he was great. So he's an exciting actor that I'm looking forward to see what comes from him, especially with The Last of Us that will debut in just a few weeks here. I am so excited for The Last of Us. I am a fan of the video game and the most recent trailer just gave me a lot of hope. And yeah, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is a lot of fun. All right. So we're moving up to my number eight. I think this is on Ben's list. I'm not sure. But that is uh, Jordan Peele's third movie, Nope. It did not make my list. And I'm I'm surprised it's as low for you because I knew that was in your top five for most of the year. Yeah. Well, just to talk about it a little bit, I know everyone, the reason it is still in my top 10 is because I had, after thinking about it, I had to come to grips with something, and that is you can't compare every movie he does to get out. You you just can't do it. They're all different, and they're all good. Well, I think this one does a little bit better than his last movie, Us, which is also very good, and in my opinion, is his scariest movie. I would agree. Um, Is this one is more of a commentary on just fame and the industry itself and how that can be corrupting. And he brought in a couple of new actors. He had the always excellent Daniel Kaluuya, obviously, in the lead role. But he brought Kiki Palmer in to be Daniel Kaluuya's sister. And she is easily the best performance in the film. Oh, yeah. The movie is about a family of people who train horses for movies and have been doing so for decades. And when something starts taking people into the sky after their dad people they go on the hunt to find it and photograph it and figure out if it's aliens or not and i think a lot of most people have seen it by now and if you haven't just go see it it's really good it didn't go the way i expected and i when i first saw it i was like huh don't know if i like that but the more it sat with me the more i liked it and um also has steven yoon in it which friend of the show steven yoon give him all of the roles he's he's amazing and then there was that chimpanzee sequence, which was the other most tense sequence of the year. I was going to say, like, my favorite part of Nope was all of the Steven Yeun backstory. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all of the chimpanzee set stuff was amazing. So here was my foreshadowing from earlier when I was talking about Glass Onion and Knives Out. This is the same thing which mm-hmm. Tristan was talking about is... I think Nope is a spectacular movie and I really enjoyed it. To me, it was the comparison not only to get out just to my expectations for Jordan Peele because it was very different than what he had done. And I think it's fair to say at this point, we should not be limiting Jordan Peele in the box of this horror mindset of this is what he's going to deliver. He's more of a Kubrick mind of he's going to take on any genre and create a compelling movie in that genre. He just obviously did so well with this thriller in Get Out and Mm -hmm. then almost doppelganger horror in Us that I just assumed, hey, this is going to be more horror Jordan Peele stuff. And yes, it had the bent toward horror, but this was more of an action and a, like, I don't know, just a thinky... Thinky action sci-fi movie, which is another thing that I want to say just about Jordan Peele is the more you watch it, the more you're going to pick up on and the more you're going to Mm -hmm. appreciate any of his films or just sitting with them and thinking about them. 
I think this is what it made get out a masterpiece is you see all of these small details that build and you say, oh, I didn't see this on the first time, but the second time I'm watching through it, I'm noticing this about it. That's what he does so well as a filmmaker. So even if you're like me, if Nope wasn't your favorite the first time around, favorite of his at least, again, I really enjoyed it. Give it a second watch and I bet you'll appreciate it more on the second viewing. Yeah, yeah. I think once we get over that hump of he's going to always make horror films and we just kind of accept that he's going to do whatever he wants. There's always going to be a sort of shift towards that because even there are a couple of scenes in Nope, like we said, the chimpanzee scene, which is scary. The scene uh, where the thing is just like hovering over the house and Daniel Kaluuya is stuck in his car Mm. all night is also a, a standout scary sequence of the movie. But at the end of the day, I think I enjoyed this quite a bit. Like I said, I liked it more than us, which was just scary. And, um, yeah, Jordan Peele's Nope is good. If you haven't seen it, give it a watch or two. And the horror was Hollywood all along. Yes, it was. And what we do for fame. Yep. My number eight is something that we had already briefly talked about. It was Bullet Train. This is a movie, when I saw it, I just absolutely loved it. I think this is one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances that oh, he's yeah. done. Also, Brad Pitt had a very interesting year between this the Lost City, where he has a supporting role, which was also one of my favorite performances by him. And recently, Babylon, which I have not seen yet, and I'm not sure I will yeah. until I have I'm also to. In that, in that boat, because it's, it's if we can, for a moment, Hollywood, this three-hour movie thing can stop any moment. <laughs> Especially ones that don't need to be that long. Like, some movies need to be three hours. Most of them do not, but... yeah. But yeah, I, so I think Brad Pitt gave an amazing performance in this. My standouts are probably Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry. Absolutely. Who play twins. Lemon and Tangerine, I believe, are their code names. Mm-hmm. I love them. And what I love most about them, I texted my brother as soon as I finished with the movie and told him he needed to watch it for one specific reason. And I couldn't tell him what it was. But the way that Tangerine, I believe or Lemon, I can't remember their code names. He uses... Aaron Taylor Johnson and Lemon is... uh, Okay. Brian Taylor Henry, yeah. Lemon. He uses Thomas the Tank Engine stickers to label people as almost this, like, horoscope labeling system of, like, oh, you're you're good at nature. You're a Percy. Or you're, you know, in the whole movie, he's carrying around this diesel sticker (laughs) trying to figure out, like, who the big bad is. And when they determine who's actually pulling all of these strings and making things happening, labeling this person as a diesel is just is one of my favorite like little gimmicks that they do in the movie. And I I loved it so much. And the way that this movie is filled with a bunch of fun cameos and actors and actresses that just seems like they're having a lot of fun making this. And like Tristan said, it's an action comedy, but it doesn't let the comedy detract from the action. You know, they're not just quipping all the time over it. As much as we love you, Marvel, like sometimes Thor, Love and Thunder, you can have too Mm -hmm. many quips and not land them. This one is action first. And the comedy comes from a lot of nature of the action. It's not forced into there. It's you're laughing at the situation, not necessarily what the characters are saying. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this movie and yeah, made number eight on my list. And this is a situation where we are breaking from 
other reviewers because critics seem to not enjoy this one a whole lot. And you know what? It is kind of derivative of a lot of stuff. It's not breaking any new ground, but was it some of the most fun I had at the movies that didn't require me to do any thinking? Absolutely. It was. And we need more of that. And it taught me to get rid of the diesels in my life. And I think everybody should be on the lookout for diesels. That's true. But just to shout out a couple of other people in that movie, even though Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry are the best parts of it. Joey King in a role that I did not expect her to be in, but she killed, was excellent. And like, like we said, Brad Pitt. And then Sandra Bullock, who for most of the movie isn't even on screen. She's just a voiceover, but she's just doing a great job and overall that was just a fun little romp that we that that yeah we both have on our list tristan what was your seven pretty sure this isn't on your list but it has been on mine and i have told everybody to watch it that is prey so this comes from dan trachtenberg director of 10 cloverfield lane this is a predator prequel kind of that takes place in the 1700s where a Comanche girl ends up fighting the Predator. And that's mostly the plot, but the script and the direction is so good and the actors are so good that this kind of elevated it above what we have come to expect from the Predator franchise Mm -hmm. to the point where there is conversation that is, is is this movie better than the classic 1980s Predator film? which I haven't actually seen. (laughs) I've seen the TV edited of Predator 2 and and this, and this is excellent. But Ben did just say, yes, this is better. Some just interesting facts about this movie, filmed mostly on location. So, and they didn't use any artificial lighting. So everything you see is like lit by the world they're in. There is a Comanche dub of the film. And this was originally pitched to be in the language, but like, they couldn't pull that off, but that exists. I haven't watched that version myself. I plan to at some point just to kind of experience the language. And yeah, Ben, what did you think of this? I really enjoyed this movie as well. I think what really works for it is when you think of a Predator movie, the ones that we've seen before, it's usually these big ensemble casts. So many people getting pulled off one by one, just like a lot of different sci-fi horror type movies and the originals got Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers and all of these big burly muscular military men and in this one is very different this is a very isolated movie I would say for a lot of it the beginning is a somewhat larger ensemble but a lot of it is just between Amber Midthunder's character and the Predator And it's Mm -hmm. like almost this cat and mouse game of being the hunted and being the hunter and how those roles can change during the course of the hunt. So I think that's what really works for me is we're not balancing all of these different characters screen time. We're not having the Fast and the Furious problem where no one can lose a fight and we have to have all of these big action set pieces that were just continuing to build and build and getting bigger and bigger stakes. Like this is a very low stakes movie, which is what makes it work. You're, you relate more to the character and to the situation because it's all told through this lens of one specific character, which made me really like it. Also, we've been on the Dan Trachtenberg train for a while. I'm glad Hollywood's mm-hmm. starting to catch up a little bit. Give him more of these 
little pieces. 10 Cloverfield Lane was amazing. One of my favorite movies the year that it came out. And this one, I think it just shows what he can do with an established IP, but make it very different from the original, which works. this, This one, I think, touches on the idea of humans being able to overcome with their intelligence, even if they are outgunned a little bit better than the first Predator does. And I also just like to shout out uh, the person who played Amber Midthunder's brother in the film, mm-hmm. Dakota Beavers. This was his first role. He nailed he, it. He's so good. He he plays like a more confident hunter and their chemistry was really good. And there's his last scene in the film is one of the best fight scenes of, of the movie and mm-hmm. is also one of the most heartbreaking moments in a franchise that I don't think you really touch on as like emotionally moving, but he managed to do it. Yeah. So, and you can't just count out the like 10 minute sequence of the predator, just absolutely wrecking a bunch of French fur trappers, (laughs) which is so good. And that one's so good. And then also this is a tight 90 minutes. You get in, you get out. It's great. It's on Hulu. It was never released theatrically, which I think is a shame. Some of the effects were a little iffy. They kind of, I think they put most of the money towards the Predator, which looks great in the whole film. But this, I think, could have done well theatrically. And they're going to do more. I hope that we see more of Amber Midthunder's character and maybe Dan Trappenberg behind the camera. And then they actually release it theatrically. Yeah, here we go. Moving on to my seven, which I assume is on Tristan's list as well, is the Banshees of Inishirin. It is a lot higher for me. But... Okay, <laughs> I will just briefly mention, I love Martin McDonough, one of my favorite filmmakers. In Bruges is a great movie. Most people probably know him from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri from 2017. Lesser known movie in the middle, Seven Psychopaths, that doesn't work as well that it, it probably should, but does have a excellent Christopher Walken performance in it, as well as some other characters. This one reunites Colin Farrell, who had an amazing year this year is probably the front runner if not second place for best actor in yeah. the oscars i would say probably, it's probably neck, the, neck, neck and neck, neck. brendan fraser oh i was thinking even austin butler from elvis uh, we so, know how the uh, academy loves musical biopics yeah that's true but I th- yeah he's he's in the conversation for for it for sure yeah. But it reteams him and Brendan Gleeson. The two of them were together way back in 2008 for Martin McDonough's directorial debut in Bruges. This movie is so zany and so weird just with the central story. And I don't want to give a lot away and we'll, we'll let Tristan talk more. We get to it in his list. But the way that Martin McDonough can just take the mundane and just a very small interpersonal conflict and turn it into a two-hour masterclass in acting, cinematography, directing, character, supporting character with Barry Keegan, who is also in another movie that we'll talk about here coming Mm up. I just, I really liked how this movie did not have this grand scope, that it was very focused and just talked about this small town and these small characters. And it didn't have to have all this big spectacle, it was the spectacle. Yeah, for sure. We will touch on it 
in a little bit when we get it to it on mine. Like I said, it is a little bit higher. I uh, this one stuck with me long enough that I had to I had to reflect that. At my number six, we have the Batman. Oh well, that is my oh nope. That's a little higher for me too. So. so we'll talk about it in a second when we get there. I will just say, and we can move on. I texted somebody after this movie ended, just the phrase. Nolan's supremacy is over. And I think that says it all when it comes to theatrical Batman. And Ben, we can move on to your number six and we can discuss this one a little bit more later. Yes, too long from now. My number six was a very recent movie that Tristan deemed My White Whale. I tried to see this movie so many times. I ended up changing which movie subscription plan I use to finally be able to see this movie. And it is The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's unofficial biopic, autobiopic, I guess, about his childhood and what made him want to become a filmmaker. I think this movie had some of the best cinematography and just the way that it was shot in some sequences were some of the best shots I saw all year. Mm -hmm. Specifically thinking as a very young child, going to the movies for the first time and not as uh, well done as Belfast, I think, yeah. where you, but this similar shot of watching someone watch a movie for the first time, but then going home and recreating that movie and the way that it made you feel and the way that the way that the movie is shot showing you how the young character Sammy goes about and shoots his own movie for the first time is great. I think the performances in this film are worthy of nominations. I don't know if any of them would win, but you have Paul Dano who plays the father. Also who, having a great year. <laughs> amazing year. I'm glad he's finally getting mainstream recognition because he's been doing it all the way back since little miss sunshine or even before and just has had some really good character moments throughout his time and is finally hitting these bigger roles and, you know, having some meteor parts. So he plays the father who's it's him and Michelle Williams who plays the mom. And they're kind of these opposites of the dad is very focused on science and innovation and just what works in the world and what's right. And the mom is the artist. She's a pianist and she's, worried about the abstract and the creative and the kids are this mix and watching as this, the nuclear family engages in the differences between high art and high science and the way that those don't always mix well and what that does. And I think what's beautiful about it, especially the acting of Gabriel LaBelle who plays a uh, 16 year old Sammy. So carries out mm -hmm. through most of the film he does this beautifully of going between the art and the science of cinema and how that creates in him this love, both of his parents coming together for him and, and his journey to become a movie maker. And you just, I just love watching all of these different home films that he creates and the production value that he puts into it and the innovation that he can have as 
you know, a young man and figuring these things out. And I will also two more things and then I'll let Tristan talk a little bit. Number one is this is my favorite Seth Rogen performance of all time. No, he's he's incredible in this. I didn't know it was him until he till he laughed. Like, <laughs> I didn't was... know he was in it because I don't think he was in any of the marketing for it. I don't think he um, was. Or maybe very briefly, but he is so understated, which is so rare for Seth Rogen. He brings this, you know, it's still his joyful, goofy self, but he has more weight and depth to him. And I think that he absolutely nails it with the part that he's doing. And there's one particular scene where the end line is and keep the change and just the way that he has mm-hmm. this real range of emotions throughout this short scene really works. And the other thing that I just want to say really quickly about the Fablemans is there are so many movies about making movies and about Hollywood and blowing smoke for Hollywood. Look how great it is and everything. Yes, this is a movie about making movies that we've seen before, but I feel like this one doesn't glorify it as much as so many. It doesn't say movies are going to, make you feel better and do all of these things. It shows the brokenness a lot of times in Mm -hmm. creators and why a lot of people who make art don't have it all together, have these, this tragedy within them in a very similar frame to, I think what Pinocchio showed is Mm -hmm. it's, it takes this tragedy and this brokenness within oneself to be able to create the beauty behind it. I think the reason this one finally got cut from my list is the comparison to Belfast, which is another semi-autobiographical look at why somebody became a filmmaker. But that one, I think, was just a bit more emotionally resonant with the way it uh, framed it in The Troubles. That's just a personal thing. This movie is excellent. It, I think it is Spielberg's best in a long time. I agree. And it just, again, proves why he's arguably the best filmmaker of all time with the performances he pulls from his actors, with the way everything is framed. It's uh, a very sparse score from John Williams, and I think one a very good one. The scene that stuck with me in this is very close to the end. When they move uh, to California, Sammy gets bullied by some anti-Semitic classmates, but he gets asked to film like senior skip day and they all go to the beach and he does it and one the way he shoots one of his bullies like frames him as some sort of like heroic figure and it upsets him the bully so much that he leaves and when sammy leaves after getting dumped by his date he tries like they have this really heartfelt conversation about after everything i've done to you why did you frame me like that and sammy just like i I didn't the camera just did it Mm mm-hmm and the bully then defends him from another bully. So it's very good. And the, the the kid who plays Sammy hopefully has a long career ahead of him because he has to carry so much on his shoulders. And he does it very well. I think also Michelle Williams, probably an Oscar conversation for Best Actress. We'll see. There's there's a lot. There's a lot this year. There's some, a lot of good performances and a lot of good movies. But yeah, The Fablemans is very good. I'm glad Ben finally was able to see it after like a month and a half. It was the first movie I watched in 2023. It was about a month after because I could just go down down the street. It was a long road, but we made it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, go see The Fablemans. Steven Spielberg, again, one of the best directors of this generation, if not of all time. 
what was your number five? We're, we're getting into the thick of things now with movies that we really loved. Number yeah, five I know, of this year. I know this one is on your list, and if it's not in your number five, it's probably close by that. That is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. It is a little higher for me still. So if you want to say something now and we can talk a little bit about it more later. Yeah, I think this movie, while Ryan Coogler proved he could make a good Marvel film and just a good film with these characters, I think this movie, because of what it represents outside of the film itself with the with the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman and then needing to quickly rewrite and reorganize a script and to have it come together in a way that honors both the character of T'Challa and the actor and lets the cast and the director and the other creatives on the project grieve a, a colleague and a friend and allows audience members to do the same is incredible. And the, the fact that this movie is as good as it is, is miracle and we can talk about more specifics later and i'm sure ben and i can go off on all sorts of comic book specifics but yeah this this movie was number two after it came out and just kind of for seeing it a couple of times it did fall down but it was never going to leave my top 10 and i don't think it was ever going to leave ben's either oh no well, great. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that one in a second. My number five is one that we've pushed up from Tristan's list already, which was the Batman, Matt Reeves's Batman take. Yeah, I think what I really like about the Batman is we've seen so many iterations and incarnations of the Caped Crusader in the last decade, decade plus. Mm. We had the Nolan verse with Christian Bale. We had these various versions of the Snyder verse with Ben Affleck. And then it was announced there was going to be this other iteration and that Robert Pattinson was going to be playing Bruce Wayne Batman. I was like, I think the general consensus was eh, we love Matt Reeves. We're, yeah. Most, in the past of the Apes about, movies are great, <laughs> but I just it's like, I'm just not sure I see it. Well, wow. When I saw this movie, this one was, hovering in my top 10 i was like this could go as high as three this could go as low as seven it ended up i was like i'm just gonna put it right in the middle at five what i love about this movie is it takes all of those iterations before so you don't have to do the rehash of so many things that we've seen on screen millions of times um if you're a fan of this show (laughs) you know that we are so against having to see the murders over and over We don't need to see those pearls fall every three years. So being able to establish, it's a young Batman, but it's an established Batman. Actually, for a majority of the movie, he calls himself Vengeance, which I was going to introduce this movie on my list as Vengeance, but there was also a movie in 2022 by BJ Novak that came out called Vengeance. Called Vengeance, yeah. I have not seen yet, um, but it is on my list. But the way that he starts off is this vengeful, vindictive Batman And throughout the movie, starts to understand that what the city needs is not more violence and his brand of justice. It is hope. It is bringing people to understand that the darkest days that they're seeing in Gotham are not the only days that they're going to see. That there is a path forward and that it starts by dismantling some of these systems that are oppressing the people in the city. I think 
this movie worked very well as an allegory for what we've been seeing in the past few years of American society with extremist groups and the way that it is very easy to motivate and gather groups of people who are like-minded with very extreme views. I think that's what the, the Riddler does in this movie. And again, Paul Dano, what a year. One of the best takes on a comic book villain. And I'm so glad, based on some iterations of comic book villains that we've seen in the past decade plus, I think he's doing mentally okay. Like, I don't yeah. think he's had a breakdown. So, good. Stay around for we a love while, that. Paul Dano. We love you. Tristan, give give us some thoughts on the Batman. Yeah, I, I went into this one pretty skeptical because we had seen so many Batmans and in the past. And I actually really liked the the Zack Snyder take on Batman. I thought Ben Affleck was really good as like this burnt out end of his rope drunk brutal Batman. And I would have liked to see more and I think this was originally going to be about his Batman, but because Warner Brothers and DC are absolute disaster were that got at the time that we're we're changing we're changing with the times uh ben and i uh, believe in james gunn i was i was skeptical with this and just i was blown away with how good this was because it didn't pull from like the arkham games or anything like that it seemed to like just take what batman was in the animated series and make it a little bit darker and then throw it up on screen. Andy Serkis, who again, also having a great year. If you haven't watched Andor, mm-hmm. he's real good in it. Plays Alfred. And while I don't think anyone is going to be as good as Michael Caine in the role of Alfred, Andy Serkis as kind of a younger, sassier Alfred with a younger Bruce Wayne was very good. Uh, if you've watched Gotham, it was more like that relationship which i love all of the things that they borrow from the gotham centric verse and bring into this yeah and we got we got to talk about colin farrell as oswald cobblepot aka the penguin in the best prosthetic makeup i've seen in a long time he's unrecognizable if you didn't know going in that it was colin farrell playing the penguin you would not know yeah you would you would watch the credits and you would go no it wasn't but he was just enough a spin on like a classic gangster who was but also like didn't care if he was getting harassed by the police he made fun of gordon and batman at one point for not understanding how to conjugate spanish which is like a language head i like that that's uh that makes me happy and he i believe he's getting a spinoff show Correct. and on hbo max that is in production soon and i am excited for that because if we get more of that and more building of this version of gotham which is it feels like gotham city it doesn't feel like batman is just like in chicago which i think was something that the nolan movies in batman begins gotham felt like its own thing and then by the dark knight it was just like it's it's uh, it's a city um this one just feels like broken and beaten down and it's raining all the time and i don't think we see anything during the day except a funeral like it's it's so the atmosphere is good the score by michael giacchino was excellent robert pattinson just playing a batman that is a bruce wayne that is so dedicated to being batman that he does not care 
about Bruce was great. Zoe Kravitz was pretty good as Catwoman. I don't think we really needed her in the movie, but I liked. I, I think what we needed her for was you needed this foil for Bruce in a lot of the scenes. You just you needed someone for him to play off against, and mm-hmm. the, their chemistry was really great. Also, so. that was that was definitely his first kiss. I'm just I'm just gonna say <laughs> that like they kiss and he'd never kissed anyone before. That was his first because he's so broken. Yeah, and and then the end of the movie pulling the we need to bring hope back is so refreshing to see because we didn't see that in the Snyder version which again I really liked that take on Batman that was more like close to the the Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and then the Nolan Batman which you know for the for that time period we needed we needed a bit more like a militaristic Batman but for this one to spin the taking it back to Batman's roots of like the reason I do this is to lift up Gotham not to punish those who do wrong and like that scene where he's on the roof of the stadium and like putting somebody on a stretcher to be airlifted to a hospital and like she holds his hand while she's being lifted up until he has to let go is just like something we haven't seen in a cinematic Batman before and it's it's really good to see that take I'm excited to see where this goes me too and I I really hope we've talked about fan casting. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about more of the Batman two as details mm-hmm. emerge, but let's have something that's not Joker. Like mm-hmm. give us some other villain, Killer Croc, Mr. Freeze, yeah, Court of Owls, Calendar I Man. I would love, love to see a, a Cold Heart, which if you don't know is the episode of the animated series where you find out about uh, Mr. Freeze backstory. And it's sad. <laughs> It's so real sad. sad. And we haven't had a Mr. Freeze since Arnold. So like would love to see that. Yeah, Court of Owls would be really good. Killer Croc, why not? I don't know. Condiment King. Condiment King. No, well, keep him in the Harley Quinn show. But like there's so he Batman has the best villains and the movies have really only scratched the surface and it would be great to see uh some of the less traditional ones go up against this Batman. Deathstroke, maybe. Deathstroke would be good. Mad Hatter. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about Batman villains all day. What I'm really interested in is Tristan's number four movie of the year. I think this is also on your list, Barbarian. (laughs) Funnily enough, this is also my number four movie of the year, so we can talk about it together. This movie was the scariest thing I've watched all year. (laughs) I agree. So, first of all, I want to say, I don't think we're going to talk too much about the plot of this one because this is a movie that you need to go in knowing as little as possible before you watch it if you don't know anything about the movie stop go watch the movie come back but we're still not going to give away any spoilers or anything this is definitely not i would not categorize it as my fourth favorite movie of the year but Mm. i will say it's the it is the movie that is stuck with me the most i think about this movie a lot and i think it's a testament to the good filmmaking that it is so unnerving that I left the theater and said, this is the best movie that I'll never watch again. But with time, I've kind of softened to the fact I'm like, I might watch it a second time. Like I might, I might be a little bad. Watch it again. With all the lights on and maybe somebody else there. Yeah. That's important. But yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, this I went in. A coworker of mine had seen it, and he tried to talk to me about it. And I was like, "I'm I haven't seen it. I'm seeing it this week." And he's like, "Oh, okay." But he just stopped. He said, "Don't even watch the trailer. Just go." And I did. And it it is one of the movies this year that has stuck with me the most. And yeah, it just, I didn't expect the twists and turns. I didn't expect anything that happened. And it's it's good. It's not just scary. It's a good film. Yes, I think what really works, what really worked with this movie is spreading of the word of mouth to be able to get more people to see it. Because even I saw the trailers for it way back during the summer, probably when they were showing it before every movie Mm -hmm. that I saw. And it doesn't tell you what the story is. It had a very good marketing campaign where it gave you enough that you're like, oh, that seems interesting. But then you had, like, I had Tristan and a couple other people that had told me, hey, you need to go see this. So I went and saw it. And I'm so glad I did because I was never in a million years will you guess what's coming in this movie. Even if you think you know, you don't know. And when you think you're like, okay, well, now I understand. Then the other shoe drops. And it just, yeah, it, it is a masterclass of horror. And I think we've talked about before, but there's this underlying principle of filmmaking that comedy and horror are a lot more aligned than horror Mm -hmm. and drama which seems very counterintuitive but when you start to see more and more of these movies that have almost comedic elements that correspond with the horror and i mean the director of this zach krieger from the old youtube slash I think it was an IFC show or something. The whitest kids, you know, you know, yeah. For him to come out his first movie, I believe or first mainstream miss March. Like that's right. Way back. And that was bad. But yeah, for him to take this idea and run with it and just create some very jarring things that will stick with you for a long time. had to make my list, even if again, it's not my favorite, but it's, great filmmaking and one of the best movies I've seen and the ones that stuck with me. I just, I also want, before we move on to shout out two of the actors, Mm -hmm. uh, Georgina Campbell, who plays the main character. Hopefully she gets more work after this because she was excellent. She had a lot to, to carry and she was incredible at it. And then also not, and then Dustin Long in a role that I did not expect. He was also great. I don't want to say too much about him in the movie because I don't want to spoil too much. But when you see him, you'll just kind of go, what? And then it keeps going and you buy it. It's just it's a very good movie. It's on HBO Max. We're not sponsored or anything, but like go watch it if you haven't seen it. First time, do it good horror movie style lights off and then maybe watch it again if you're not too scared with the lights on because i I think that's the only way ben and i will be watching it i believe so yeah we can just move on to my number three which i near positive is on your list and might actually be your number three as well the menu mine is a little higher so you want to talk about it now Um, or well, we can just, I'll just preface this with just go see it, guys. It's getting a lot of good word of mouth and uh, it, it is good. Just go see it. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a second. Ben, what is All your right. number three? My number three, a movie that you previously mentioned down at your five or six, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. This, look, 
if a movie makes me ugly cry multiple times, it has to be in my top three movies of the year. I think that's just, that's a rule I've written for myself. I went into this movie knowing that it would make me emotional. As Tristan had mentioned earlier, the passing of Chadwick Boseman just left this giant hole in the movie. There was so much adversity with his loss and with the COVID pandemic and so many other behind the scenes things that I think a lot of us were just thinking, do we even need this movie? Can can we just stop? Because we didn't want the legacy of the first one and the legacy of Chadwick Boseman's character to be tarnished. And wow, I think this movie did an amazing job honoring his life and his work and just all of these characters around him. So yeah, I, I ugly cried three times, both times that I watched it at different points the second time than the first, even though some of them were the same. I think the the standout of this movie is just the acting. I think the story is good, but the performances that come from this film, which a lot of people will write off of, oh, it's just another superhero movie. It's just another Marvel movie. I mean, yes, as a Marvel stan, as someone who's currently wearing an Ant-Man t-shirt, like, yes, I understand that this is my thing, but the performances in this movie, I think Angela Bassett, first and foremost, is Queen Ramonda, gives one of her best performances in anything. Very moving. Has so much emotion and range and depth in it. Mm-hmm. The way that Letitia Wright takes over as the main character in the story, dealing with the grief and loss of her brother and the way that she internalizes a lot of that and then has to lead and do all of these things for her people and for her family and for her friends and her nation is just wow. And then newcomer Tena Cuerta, who is labeled as introducing in this movie Mm -hmm. is in his credits, even though he's had a couple roles in the Narcos Mexico series on Netflix, but him as Namor, not Namor, as we normally say, but in this movie, it is very clearly Namor. The depth that he brings as the main antagonist is amazing. And some of his backstory that was completely rewritten for the film showcases a lot of these same ideals that Ryan Coogler got out of the first movie to demonstrate how Talokan, this version, you know, they, they wanted to stay away from a lot of the Atlantis mythology that's evident in the comics a lot of which because we've seen that with aquaman so this you know they didn't want to make this a ripoff so the way that they brought new life and history to this nation um, and the way that it mirrors wakanda from some of their same beliefs and resources and and then what makes them different but also unites them is really great so i think as a love letter to chadwick as a continuation of these rich characters that existed beyond the Black Panther, beyond T'Challa, is just, I've went back and watched it a few times after the first, and just every time I'm just blown away by each individual piece in it. Even if there are two characters that I wish weren't in the movie or were a lot smaller roles. The Americans. Yep. <laughs> Minus Riri. I liked Riri a lot. Riri was all right. I she was I liked her a lot the first time and then the second time I was like oh this movie's two two hours and forty five minutes long do we really need Riri that is that is not to say that the the actress who played her was bad she was not she was a lot of fun yeah I think that this movie is the most emotionally impactful superhero film since I think Logan it's very good I know Angela Bassett is actually in conversation for best supporting actress not Oscar nominations 
I mean, if if the Academy can get over its dislike of genre film, I think she has a real shot because the weight mm. that she brings as Queen Ramonda um, is having seen her husband and then her son and then maybe her daughter in the plot of the movie just die and just how she carries that and brings that out in her performance is it transcends what this movie is and i think should go down in recent history as one of the best supporting performances she is absolutely incredible and that is in a movie filled with people doing some of their best work and I think we, we saw the Academy with the original Black Panther look mm-hmm. past genre film to highlight some of the aspects of that movie. I would say I would not be surprised if this is the movie that again crosses that superhero genre threshold to get some more recognition. And I hope Angela Bassett mm-hmm. is included as one of those. She deserves it. All right. Are we on my number two? I think so. Ben mentioned this a lot earlier. That is Banshees of Inishirin. In a weird twist of fate with this movie, before I saw it, I got a text from my mom saying, hey, me and your dad just saw this movie. You need to go see it. And I was like, what? They saw a movie before me? (laughs) And then I think Ben also, I don't know if I saw it before you. I can't remember. I I saw saw it on either the day or the second day it came out. Okay, so you did see it before me. But I went and saw it. And I have thought about this movie more and more somebody wants to talk about movies this year and i know that part of that is because i really like those slice of life movies where people can like really dig into characters and martin mcdonough's script and directing allowed for so much of that in this film that is at its core about two people who used to be friends and one of them just deciding i don't want to be friends with the other one anymore and Colin Farrell as like the the nice guy of the village trying to figure out why his former friend doesn't want to be friends anymore gives the performance of his career. It's incredible. Just how funny this movie is at the beginning and then about halfway through it just takes this masterful turn into dark and sad where Brendan Gleeson's character is like, if you keep trying to talk to me, I'm going to cut off my fingers. And he's a fiddler. So you're like, no, nah, he's not going to do it. Man, he does it. And it's just uh, set against this on this like little fictional island off the Irish coast. But they're just far enough from the mainland that they can see the cannon fire from the Irish Civil War, but it's not affecting them. So they don't. So they're like, why are these people killing each other? And then to have that contrast with this person who's saying, I don't want to be friends with this guy I've been friends with my whole life because he's not interesting and I want to be remembered for creating great music and not just being nice and it's incredible just one of the a one of the most irish movies i have ever seen in my (laughs) life like it and belfast are like just so just so irish but this movie like the the way the actors interact with each other and just embody their characters and just the back and forth dialogue is just so tightly written and everybody is bringing their a game really incredible film in my opinion and i i think like we said earlier, Colin Farrell's got a shot at winning gold here. Like he, mm-hmm. in a year where he gave several good performances, this one stands like 
head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, I'll say the only other thing about this movie is the script is so well put together that this movie, there's not much of a plot that you would think of for a modern movie. It's all about how the dialogue moves things forward and the way that it's this small town of just a handful of characters. So they all know each other well and news travels fast. So it's the way that you're hearing things multiple times by multiple different people in their own interpretations and just the subtle differences between them is what carries a lot of the weight in this movie and what moves it forward. And I agree. I think all the performances are amazing. And I just, I think it's one that's going to stand up for a long time. And I think Mm -hmm. people will continue to discover it years down the road, continue to grow the following. Also a good Um, donkey. Great donkey. (laughs) It was a a year for a lot of good animals. (laughs) Um, My number two, which Tristan had mentioned moments ago, is The Menu. This was a movie that when I saw the first trailer, they showed trailers for this movie for like six to eight months before every movie that I saw, before it it finally came out. And I'm so I'm so glad that I saw the trailers and that I sought it out once it came out because this movie was beautiful. I think it was in some narcissistic part of myself. I feel like this movie was made for me because it has so many qualities that I absolutely adore. As someone who grew up high school into college watching a lot of Food Network, it had so many of these qualities of like good food and artistry. And what I think what I really love about it is this idea of art and how you appreciate and understand and talk about art and the people who create it centered around the chef portrayed by Ray Fiennes. And yeah, it's this evening where a bunch of elites come together for this fancy dinner at this very exclusive restaurant and not everything is as it seems so i think ray fines gives us amazing performance anya taylor joy carries through is kind of the audience's window into rationality throughout mm-hmm. the film you really you're rooting for her just in this backdrop of things that don't make sense the way that she reacts to it is how you as an audience react to the situation. So you can see yourself through that. And Nicholas Holt gives a great performance as someone who is not necessarily of the elite and of this in the in-group, but can buy his way into it and idolizes this chef and all of these things. He can speak the lingo and he he can talk about what's going on, but he doesn't have that practical wisdom to actually be able to do the thing. And a lot of good ensemble performances too. John Leguizamo is there. He had a great year this past year as well. A lot of good years in 2022. And I just think what stands out from this movie and why it got as high as two is the way that it transitions between the different parts of the movie through the dishes. So it's a four hour meal throughout the course of the evening. And as each dish is presented, it goes from the cinematic view of the restaurant and the characters and everything to this food network panning around the dish. And it highlights all of the ingredients and all of the components and all of these things. And once you get into the plot, it starts doing similar things with the plot of the film, labeling them as dishes. It's all part of the menu. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend. Go see it. It's, it's fun. 
it's thrilling it's the menu what elevates this above a lot of stuff that came out this year is it kind of comes from the parasite school of dark comedy where like it's very suspenseful and it's weird and you don't know what's going to happen but it's funny all the way through and i think the script which was written by two people who are former uh, former writers for the onion and one works for john oliver and one works for seth meyers currently so like they they know how to make you laugh but the dark turns this film takes are really unique Ani taylor joy and ray fines give really good performances yeah this movie is just a lot of fun it it hits all the right beats and it is one of the best movies of the year. I unfortunately think it's going to get edged out by some festival darlings come awards seasons. But, you know. Yeah, I think it's the... So for Hollywood, since Parasite and even before that, there's this... What are there? Seven stories in all of literature. This is the classic. The elites versus the not elites. The have and the have nots. In this movie, they say it's the the people who give and the people who take. So it's a classic story. I would imagine it's not going to get a lot of love from the Academy, even though I think it should, but I'm going into it thinking that it won't. So I'm not going to be disappointed when it doesn't. Yeah. Although I think we can use this as a transition to talk about what will probably get some love from the Academy and what I know for a fact is both our number ones and has been since what, March? April, I think. Before April, we're, we're, we're going to get there. I'm sure most of you already know what it is. I do want to yeah. take one moment to say movies that will probably get some Academy love that we haven't seen yet. We have not seen mm-hmm. every movie from 2022. So don't get mad at us. We have not seen Tar. We have not no. seen After Sun. We have not seen The Whale as of yet. There might There's probably some other blind spots that we haven't seen. Um, the big ones. We, we haven't seen RRR. Oh yeah, we haven't. We should. Though. Um, we should. I think that's one that I'm gonna watch. It's just it's yeah. a commitment. It's three it's and a like half hours. hours. Yeah. Oh, Indian. Yeah. Indian um, films are always long. <laughs> we haven't seen a lot of foreign films, so just clarifying, this is the best of the year. Our top ten with an asterisk. We might we'll watch more movies. Some things yeah. might change, but unequivocally, <laughs> I don't. We still think haven't it been will. to festivals, but yeah, we have we'll not get been there. to festivals. Uh, unequivocally, I don't think it will ever change for either of us looking back at 2022. The number one movie of the year of the official Journey to the Center of Cinema podcast is... Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And I think this is is a lot of people's favorite of the year to the point where people are now starting to be like, no, I didn't like it because people are tired of hearing about it. But I think we saw a trailer for this before No Way Home, if I'm remembering correctly. And I was not sold on it. And then some friends of mine were like, hey, we're going to go see an opening weekend. Do you want to come along? And I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't really know what was happening in the movie when I saw it. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect to sit down and watch one of the most moving and buck wild and incredibly edited, written, performed movies ever. Like this, this thing stands and I'm going to you borrow a phrase from another friend of mine who said that you left this movie knowing that this was special. Mm. 
and like i when i saw parasite in theaters i left that knowing this is mm, there's something here mm -hmm. this felt not quite the same but this is this is one of the best movies i have ever seen <laughs> I, I have a similar story where one of our mutual friends, I had not heard of this movie yet, and we went to see, it may have been when we went to see No Way Home, yeah, he was, was telling me about, oh, have you seen the new Michelle Yeoh multiverse movie? And I just, my initial thought was, we've we've had Into the Spider-Verse, which is amazing, mm -hmm. one of the best, if not the best multiverse movies. I was like, we're about to have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. There's been some other multiverse things over the past decade or so. I just don't know if I want another multiverse movie. And then I, and I was like, I saw the first trailer and I'm like, mm, that looks kind of weird. All those googly eyes and like, this is just, I don't know. And then I'm so glad I went to see it. I think I saw it on opening weekend as well, which funnily enough, this came out the same weekend as The Lost City. Same day. Yeah. One of those movies. Well, Sorry, Diego. One of those movies was a lot better than the other one. No fault of yours. <laughs> I think um, I think he would agree. But yeah, I think everything about this movie, everywhere about this movie, all at once about this movie was just it blew me away and it I I agree with Tristan. I left the movie saying, "Wow, there's nothing that's going to top that this year." And nothing did. And nothing came close. I mean, even I, I rewatched both the menu and everything everywhere all at once over the past few nights. I was like, maybe there's just this this slight chance that it's better. And I'm like, no, that's, there's a huge gap between the two. And what separates this movie is I think it's not focused on the multiversal aspects. It's focused on this story of a family and this one individual person and the family members and then it has it has all of the multiversal elements that carry the plot along but throughout you're connecting with this one character and this one version of this character that again is the embodiment of the audience of being not sure what's going on and all of the absurdity that's happening around her michelle yo masterfully carries the movie forward and great supporting performance by ihei kwa his, his mm -hmm. name as Waymond Wong, the husband. Yeah, who came back to Hollywood after decades of not working at it. Because you may remember him as either Short Round or uh, Data in either uh, The Goonies or Temple of Doom. And he stopped acting because he couldn't get any roles. And then he got this script somehow and became just the heart and soul of this movie. I think we could we could spoil this one because I'm pretty sure everybody who listens to this has seen this. It's been out for eight months or more, so yeah, I think we can spoil it. But to to have a movie that is essentially about a, 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 a recurring theme in the last past year or so, which is generational trauma and how a daughter could be of immigrants who is more accepting of um, LGBTQ people and is one herself and doesn't want to work in a laundromat can start fighting with her mother and then how overcoming that because no matter where you are or when you are you still love each other and the time you have on earth is small and you should spend it together when you can uh, to have that story play out over the backdrop of someone 
learning skills from multiversal versions of herself to fight other people who have to do the most bizarre things to gain fighting powers and like talking raccoons and hot dog hot dog fingers and talking googly-eyed rocks that make everybody in the movie theater cry it's Mm -hmm. like nothing about this movie should work like it's just so weird and somehow everything about it works yeah i think so what i really like about the movie is it's broken up into three chunks based on the title everything everywhere all at once first of all it has a really good fake out that's probably got me a little bit when I was in theater. And then even when I was rewatching it the other night, I was like, it has a really great fake out of the end of part one into the beginning of part two, where it has credits start to roll and it has some of these things. And then it transitions to that in another universe. But each of the three sections, the first one is the longest. The second one is about the same length. And the third one is fairly short in comparison. But it beautifully breaks up this story into different chunks that's, again, all the same narrative, but about the different ways that Evelyn, the main character, develops throughout the movie. Starting off with how she's not good at anything, and she's starting to learn skills, and then how she's equipping herself into unlocking this multiversal mindset to be at multiple places at one time and how how everything starts to fall apart because she can't her mind isn't strong enough to balance all of these different versions at the same time into the last one where these pieces come together and she can unlock her potential and and through and here's the other thing that i want to mention about this movie is i think unjustly so a lot of people distill this movie down to a fight between good and evil and there's evil that's invaded Jobu Tapaki. And there's the evil there. And then there's the goodness of Evelyn. And there's this fight of good and evil. And really, this movie is not about good and evil. It is about apathy and care. Mm-hmm. And, and where that line comes in. Because at, at the center of the movie is the everything bagel. Where you take a bagel and you put all of your hopes and dreams and every breed of dog and every picture you ever drew and everything and human and poppy seed and you know whatever else garlic and salt um i think it's the quote in the movie it's i think there's also fairly report close. cards on there but like, report yeah. cards yes you have this everything bagel which is not about evil or about any sort of the the force behind it is just not caring of meaninglessness in the universe or the multiverse and the way that that decision comes through is can i go into this existence and what will happen it can't be any worse than what it already is because what is is meaningless and for the whole arc of the story to be for evelyn to basically realize that yes everything is meaningless but for the time that we have why don't we make meaning of it we don't have to delve into this you know the negative parts and be completely apathetic towards our existence let's be together and even though it's imperfect and i'm not a perfect mother and i make mistakes and even in her own way you know she's telling her daughter that she's fat and doesn't call enough and all of these things but that they're always going to be there for one another um which is just a great speech this uh, this movie is very nihilistic 
mm-hmm. because at the end of the movie, nothing does matter, but it's nihilistic in the most positive way possible by saying, if nothing matters, then we can make it matter. Yeah. We give things meaning by caring. You don't, nothing matters. So you don't care is the wrong way to look at it. Nothing matters. So you should care. Right. And I think to have that, which is not really an easy thing to wrap your head around to have that in a movie that is also throwing a bunch of sci-fi at you pretty fast and to have people come out and understand that pretty much across the board and to be moved by scenes that say basically every almost all of the different multiverses are just empty and it wasn't correct for life so you can just be a rock and you can just sit there but to also say because that nothing matters you can do whatever you want so you can put googly eyes on that rock and you can chase around another rock and to have people cry about the rocks and to have a scene where somebody with a straight face says in another life I would have enjoyed just doing laundry and taxes with you and to have that be darn near the most romantic thing I've ever heard in a movie like it's it's the weirdest movie or one of the weirdest movies I've ever watched but it's also just you can every rewatch you will get something new you will notice something more beautiful you will notice something different Every time you will watch the credits roll and you'll see that somehow a team of five or six people on VFX made one of the best looking movies of the year on a small budget. Oh, the budget was small. Like, just read some of the interviews for the people who made this movie and the, the legs that they had to go to do it. And again, if this movie doesn't get a lot of Oscar love, we riot. But, Mm -hmm. um, I, what I really appreciate about, appreciate about this movie too is it doesn't think it's smarter than what it is. I think I, I rewatched it and there are a lot of like small Easter eggs that are like, you notice them on the second time of like, oh, when they're in the IRS office, Waymond finds a everything bagel with cream cheese and he's so excited about it. And I'm like, that foreshadows the end with the everything bagel. But like 10 minutes later is when you're introduced to the everything bagel. It's not foreshadowing these big twists because in a lot of ways there aren't really twists in the movie. The movie organically rolls out the information ahead of when you would expect it to. So in that way it's defying expectations because it's not doing a a big twist at the end or halfway through or whatever. It's lining you up so that you can feel smart because you know what's about to happen or you can guess it pretty well. They're not withholding the identity of Jobu Tapaki for most of the movie to have this big reveal at the end of like, oh, it was the it was Joy, the daughter, the whole time. It's like you know that the within five minutes of the first time that Jobu Tapaki is mentioned, because yeah. Joy comes up and walks out. So I, I I really like that about it, where it's not trying to be smarter than its own good. It's cluing the audience in on things and then affirming like, yes, these are the things. Yeah, and I think. Another thing that's great about this is that the directors, uh, the Daniels, obviously wanted, they they had a very specific vision going into this, 
and they were given enough leeway by A24 and the other production companies to just do it. So they, they with their with their direction, a lot of the actors were just allowed to breathe into these roles. So like you have Michelle Yeoh, who has been working. This is this is also a year of people who have been working hard in Hollywood finally getting something that showcases their talent. And I think, mm. you know, like like Colin Farrell and Paul Dano, Michelle Yeoh, she's been working so hard for years. Mm-hmm. And this, like, this showcased her range better than any of her other films. She's amazing. The daughter, played by Stephanie Soup, she's her portrayal of Joy is so good. She brings so much to like why why Joy ends up doing this is she was given the power to multiverse jump, and eventually her brain broke so much that she was in taking the information from every possible version of herself, which gave her the ability to just change reality on a whim. And because she had all of that power, she saw no meaning. And that's a lot to handle as an actor. And she, she nails it. It's she's so good. There's, she has to balance humor and just darkness throughout this whole film. And she does it masterfully. Yeah. There, there's a lot of buzz as we roll into award season here around this movie and it's well-deserved if I were a betting man, I would probably put money on best original screenplay and best supporting actor for Kehu Kwan. I think he's pretty much a shoe in at this point for that. I don't know of a better supporting role, a better supporting actor this year. He's already won several awards for it. He like he's, he's getting a lot of work now. He's already attached to several other projects and great for him. Like he's incredible in this. So, oh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm just reading up on some facts about it. First of all, I want to also mention James Hong, who was in mm-hmm. this as a very good supporting role. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I don't think we've really oh, yeah. mentioned her at all. Yeah. Um, she is a gr- standout performance for her as an IRS agent slash other multiversal um, villain. Things. Like it's, secondary antagonist almost yeah she's i i cannot i don't think she's gonna get any like awards praise for it because i think supporting actress if they're gonna do this movie it's gonna go to stephanie sue that's not to say jimmy lee curse doesn't deserve it because i think she does she's another person who has just done so much good work in hollywood Mm -hmm. for years and one of the best parts or one of the most fun parts of the first theater experience I had with this was when she showed up and all of like me and my two friends just going, is, is that Jamie Lee Curtis? <laughs> yeah, it was great. The other, so I'm, I'm just reading up on some fun facts about this movie um, that I did not know this one before just now. So I want to make mention of it. This movie was originally shopped to Jackie Chan to lead the movie. And then he, it had to be reworked. It's unclear whether he turned it down or it was scheduling or what, but it was transformed to be a Michelle Yeoh piece. I'm not sure it would have worked if it was a male-driven piece, as much as it does yeah, with, with the emotion of Michelle Yeoh, but you, know, you never different. know. I mean, honestly, that's Jackie's loss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This uh, This was definitely... As Ben said, I think this was the 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 top of both our lists, probably after first watch, and it just kind of stuck there. And I think 
this the best part about this movie is like a fan of movies and somebody who loves going to the movie theater was being able to say to people hey go see this movie it's mm-hmm. very good and then you know like a week later that person comes back and is like yeah that was really good i've already told like six other people to go see the movie and then we just got this word of mouth thing rolling and oh yeah this this is just like a cultural from phenomenon at this point like there's not a whole lot more i think we can add to the conversation about this movie it's been talked to death yeah um, if you haven't seen it go see it you're not going to be disappointed. And if you are disappointed, you should reevaluate your own self. Yeah. Not our opinions. You have to give things meaning and you have to find joy in your life. So go do that. That's what this movie said. And I think that's what 2022 brought us in so many ways was joy at the movies or joy, just watching movies at home, joy with movies. Like we said at the beginning, I think this is one of the best years overall. For just going to the movies that either of mm-hmm. us have had. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what 2023 has to offer. Hopefully you and I soon will be able to make it to an actual festival and get a head start on stuff. Because waiting for wide release is sometimes a bit annoying. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you all so much, all three of you that are still listening. Um, Hi, to, we appreciate all three of you. <laughs> to listening to our top 10 movies of 2022. It was a great year, as we both said, and we're looking forward to many more adventures at the 2023 box office. Hopefully being able to share again next year what our top 10 movies of this year are. Yeah, 